Well, hey, good morning. I want to welcome you to Horizon Community Church on behalf of Chad and the rest of the pastors here. I'm not one of those pastors, so if you don't recognize me, that's okay. Uh, my name is Adam Dressler. I am originally from Cincinnati, actually from Lebanon. Does anyone know where Lebanon is? Hey, good. And uh, now we live in Tennessee, my wife and our two kids, and it's a great blessing to be here. Uh, Chad and I have been friends for several years, and he invited me to come back and speak. I'm very honored to serve your church in this way. I think about you guys and say prayers for you occasionally. I don't want to lie and say a lot, but occasionally. when I think of you. So I'm going to continue the series that you have been in talking about the life of Elijah playing with fire. And this morning we've got a lot to do. And so we're going to just jump right into it. We're going to read first uh, Kings chapter 18. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to that first Kings chapter 18. Or if not, we will have it up on the screen. Or I'm sure you can figure out how to read it on your nifty device. First Kings 18. Now, we're going to read several verses, and then we're going to talk a little bit about it. And so let me just read this entire passage, and then we will go from there. Verse 1, 1 Kings 18, verse 1. And the Word of God says this. And it came to pass, after many days, that the Word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. And Ahab had called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For so it was, while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave, and had fed them with bread and water. And Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go into the land to all the springs of water and all the brooks. Perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive, so that we will not have to kill any livestock. So they divided the land between them to explore it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. Now as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him, and he recognized him, and fell on his face and said, Is that you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. So he said, How have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he is not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find you. And now you say, go tell your master, Elijah is here. And it shall come to pass as soon as I am gone from you, that the spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I do not know. So when I go and tell Ahab, he cannot find you and he will kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Was it not reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid 100 men of the Lord's prophets, 50 to a cave, and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your master, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Then Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts live, before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. Okay, if you don't know the story, let me just catch you up very quickly. There was a king named Ahab, and Ahab was leading God's people, and yet the Bible says that Ahab was uh, more wicked than any of the other kings that came before him. He was incredibly wicked, and he was setting up all these religious idols. He was uh, commissioning religious practices that didn't serve the true God, Yahweh, that had called and saved this people. And so he was seen as very, very wicked, and yet God raised up another man named Elijah, And Elijah was a prophet. No one really heard of him or knew him. And yet Elijah was coming to confront Ahab about his wickedness. And the way that he confronts him is he says, there's going to be a drought on this land until I say otherwise. 
And Ahab, of course, didn't like that. Then God called Elijah away and he starts ministering uh, to this woman who's a widow who is actually dealing with the drought as well. And then now we're at the head of the story where God tells Elijah, go back to Ahab and tell him that I am the true God and that the drought is going to end. And so this is where we find ourselves. Now, Obadiah, who was Ahab's servant, but yet he's also a servant of the Lord, he's sent to go look for water. And in the process of that, he, he stumbles upon Elijah and he's very fearful because Elijah has a habit of disappearing. And one of the things that God does to protect Elijah is that as Ahab would get close, somehow I, uh, Elijah would be hidden and maybe even supernaturally at times just moved. So that he could not be pursued by this wicked king. And Obadiah knows this and he says, why have you sent me on this journey to go tell my master who is very wicked, who is not afraid of killing people, that you are here because I know what's going to happen. I'm going to say that you're somewhere. I'm going to go tell Ahab. Ahab's going to come and meet you and then God is going to do what he does with you. He's going to move you like Star Trek style and then you are going to be gone. And then he's going to be upset at me and he's going to kill me. Why are you doing this to me? I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm trying to be faithful. And Elijah assures him, he says, no. I will go face Ahab. Right? Now, what I want to talk to you about this morning is power. Because, to be honest, many of us are not probably suffering a drought, and many of us aren't going to face a wicked king, and many of us probably do not have the power to supernaturally teleport. And so how do we find something in this part of the Bible that God intends us to see? And I believe that the story is primarily about power. What does real power look like? And that, that's a, a really appropriate question because we live in a day and age when power is incredibly important. We talk about power in, in terms of a military sense. And we're seeing that even now as our nation contemplates how we're going to engage in the Middle East yet again. And, and what does it mean to engage with Russia? And what does it mean to have an army and, and an air force and all that stuff? Most of us probably think and understand that power means a show of force. We also might understand power as knowledge. You know, we don't speak about Google or Facebook or Twitter as successful companies. We speak about them as powerful companies because they possess an incredible amount of information in regards to you. Think about this. Google assuredly has every single search you have ever entered on their web browser in their data. Wow. That is powerful. Facebook knows when you're on vacation because it tags your photos when you're away. It knows what you like, what you don't like. It knows who you're friends with. It knows who you're not friends with. It knows who you broke up with. It knows who broke up with you. Right? It's not just a successful company. It is powerful. We talk about power in a lot of different ways, and the Bible is going to show us some pretty interesting things about power. And let's see what it can say to us. Let's talk about Ahab first. You know, Ahab... Because he was king, he thought that power primarily meant his position. And when he became king, he started enacting all of his laws. And he said, we're not going to follow the true God, Yahweh, anymore. We are going to follow these pagan gods. And so he starts setting up all these other religious practices in the midst of his kingdom. And he was able to do that because he sat on the highest part of the org chart. He was the king. And he thought that because of his kingly position that he possessed real Power. And, you know, we do that as well, even if we are not kings. Um, we have a four-year-old daughter. Uh, my wife and I, her name is Addison, our daughter, and she's four going on about 19. And, and she's just incredibly smart and quick-witted. And, uh, you know, we prayed for that, and now we're, we're kind of not sure if we really should have meant that. But she is, 
she's just really, really smart. And so she's at the age now where she's starting to ask questions and, and ask why. And we want to encourage curiosity because we want her to experience the world. But now she's starting to ask things like, why do I have to listen and obey? And we say, well, because mommy and daddy asked you to do this. And if you don't, you're going to get punished. Well, why are you going to punish me? I don't think you should punish me. I'm not going to do this. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go to bed. I don't want to take a bath. I don't want to try to go to the bathroom before we go on a road trip. I don't want to do any of these things. And it's very easy for my wife and I to resort to this hard truth of, listen up, kid. When we were in the hospital, we signed a paper that said we are allowed to do whatever we want with you. And we are the parents. You are not the mommy. You know, we are the mommy. We are the daddy. We get to say how you need to respond to us. So we, what are we doing? We're resorting to positional strength as a place of power. Right? We all do that. Maybe you do that in your job as well, where you, you ask someone, hey, I just need you to do this because do you see the title on my door that says boss? And yours doesn't. Maybe we do that in positions of our neighborhood or in our relationships where we try to jockey up and we think that because we've been friends longer, because we've been a better friend than the person has been a friend to us, because we have the best yard in the neighborhood, that entitles us to a position of an opinion on everyone else's yard. We think that something about our lives because of our position gives us a sense of power. And Ahab is the same way. Right? He's doing the same thing. And yet something happens in this story where we see that Ahab loses control and he realizes that his position doesn't entitle him to the true sense of power that he thought it did. You know, in the desert, water meant something very significant. It meant life. Water for us means something we drink. It means something we use to bathe. It means something that we clean with. But in the desert, water meant life. If you didn't have water, you really didn't have a chance of living because your, your animals couldn't eat. You couldn't do really anything. You couldn't grow grain. And so here's Elijah who comes into this story and he confronts Ahab who thinks he has real power. And he says, hey, you think you have power because you're the king? I'm going to show you what real power is. I'm going to not make it rain. And in the midst of that, I'm going to show you that I'm going to hold in my speech the power to give you life or withhold life from you. Because until I say something, you get no water. Now, Ahab is confronting an incredibly cruel and stark reality that all of the power that he thought he had because of his position just evaporated. And now he finds himself at the limits of his power and realizing that his position does not equate to the power that he thought it did. Right? And it's incredibly traumatic for him. And that's our story, too. You know, no one likes to face the limits of their power and realize that we aren't in control like we thought we were. Right? We've got, you know, a four-year-old daughter, and we also have uh, a 19-month-old son. And, um, you know, our son is just an amazing little dude. Uh, when he was born in the hospital, it, it, it was just kind of a traumatic experience for us because it, it happened, like, so quickly. Uh, my wife, you know, delivered really, really quickly. The doctor wasn't even able to get in. It was the nurse and then the doctor on call. And so it just kind of was a blur. But one thing we really remember very clearly is after he was, you know, delivered and, and the nurses usually say something like, oh, congratulations, you know, you, you have a beautiful baby, healthy boy, you have a healthy girl. Oh, you did a great job, mom, great job pushing. Dad, you did even better, awesome job supporting your wife. Like, can I get you anything? I mean, yeah, there's something like that. The first thing the nurses said was none of that. The first thing the nurses said when our son entered into the world was, 
oh my gosh, look at the size of his hands. And he's just a big kid. Just massive. Like, I'm, I'm almost positive that he could probably start for the Bengals right now. Right? And I'll let you figure out if I mean he's really good or the Bengals are really bad. Um, he just is a big bruiser of a kid, you know. And, and yet he's also got this really strong will. And so what we're finding is, is he is an incredibly different child than our daughter. And so for him, he doesn't try to reason with us yet. When we try to enforce our limits on him and we say, we are the parents, we have the papers to prove it, we get to decide what we do with your life, and and in that, we're trying to discipline you, we do things like this. We're trying to enforce on him immediate consequences so he learns that, that there are ramifications for his decisions, even at 19 months. So he is in the habit of throwing things. And he's got huge hands, so he can, like, throw things really far. And so he'll have a, you know, a sippy cup full of water or he'll have a toy or have one of his sister's toys and he'll just start throwing it and we'll get down in his face and we'll look right in his eyes and we'll say, Aaron, you are not allowed to just throw things. If you throw that again, mommy or daddy, we're going to take that away. And then he looks right at us and throws it as far as he can. As if to say, hey, I'll just go ahead and take care of that for you. I don't need this anyway. Right. I'll just throw it and then he just goes and does something else. Fine. And so then we said, okay, well, maybe we'll try timeout. So we have a timeout chair, which we pull out from our dining room table, and that's like the official timeout chair. And, and so he starts to, uh, when he starts to not obey, and we say, okay, Aaron, if you do that again, you're going to go in timeout. And so the first few times, we would put him up on the chair, and he just would kind of look at us with, like, doe eyes, like, what's happening? You know, and we would explain to him. And, and again, we know he doesn't understand, but we're just trying to enforce consequences for him. So he learns that mom and dad see everything, Right. And so we sit him in the chair, you know, when you pushed over your sister, that was not right, we love you, and we give him a hug, you need to go say you're sorry. Well, after about two or three times of that, now he's learned something. Where we say, Aaron, if you take your sister's toy again, or Aaron, if you throw your food, or Aaron, you're going to have to go in the timeout chair. So now he'll drop whatever he's doing, he runs to the dining room, he scoots out the chair, he climbs up in the chair, and he just sits and smiles and waits. And then we start explaining to him, now, Aaron, you're in timeout. And he just gives us a hug. <laughs> right. What's he doing there? He said, I'm going to beat you to the punch. And I'm going to take all of the gas out of your punishment. And I'm just going to go ahead and enjoy this. So then, and, and my wife and I were like, what do we do now? Right? The kid has tied our hands. He's a genius 19-month-old who's manipulating us. Like, he, he just, Right? And we're coming to the end of our positional power. And we're like brainstorming, okay, what is within inside the bounds of the law that we're allowed to do <laughs> before we get a visit with someone in the na- with a name tag in a suit? You know what I mean? Like what? Because our kid is challenging us, right? And it moves us to a place of frustration. We come to the end of our power based upon position. And you know what? You're going to come to the end of your positional power as well. It may be that you get let go from your job. It may be that you get a diagnosis from a doctor. It may be that you thought a relationship was going a certain way and then you realize it's not. It may be that your 401k tanks. It may mean that your business... And and suddenly you will realize, wait a minute, I thought I had earned this place to have power and now I don't. What's happening? And Ahab confronts that too and he responds in a pretty traumatic way. He responds with fear. 
and worry. And it causes him to be very defensive. And he starts to send out people to go look for water for his cattle because he doesn't want them to die. And, and, you know, if we're honest, we do that too. When we encounter the unknown, many of the times we respond in fear and worry. And that causes us to get defensive as well. And even when people come to us and say, hey, I, I think you're not doing well. You seem to be a little short and a little snippy and a little angry. I am not angry right now. I'm just talking loudly because I like it. We get defensive. But then he also gets very offensive as well. He starts sending people out on search parties to find Elijah. And he says, you know, I'm fearful. I'm facing the unknown. I thought I had power. I don't really have the power that I thought I had. So I'm going to send people out to try to fix the situation. And we do the same thing too. We respond out of fear and worry. And we think, okay, if I can just save more money, if I can just somehow tighten down the screws on my kids, if I can just somehow work extra hard and please my boss, if I can just somehow motivate my team better. And we get on the offensive. And and really, some of those things might actually be really good, but they're coming from a place of worry and fear because we're afraid of losing the power that we thought we had. Right? And those emotions can be incredibly powerful over us. This is what we see in Ahab. Now, one of the things that this story is doing is it's showing this kind of contrast between Ahab and Elijah. And Ahab, who thinks he has all the power, and God is steadily bringing Elijah up through this story and showing him that he is actually the one with real power. He's the one who says there's going to be a drought. If you read uh, 1 Kings 17, you see that Elijah has the power to raise the dead. He's staying with a widow whose son dies because of the famine, and he raises that son from the dead. And now God says, go visit Ahab and I'm going to show myself. So it's kind of like building in this narrative that Elijah is the one with real power. Right. And then we, we see a subtler understanding of this when Elijah goes back to see Ahab in verses 1 and 2. That this real power that Elijah has it's not just for ending the drought. It's not just for raising the dead. It's actually for facing the unknown with courage. It's just a few verses, one and two. God tells Elijah, go face this enemy of yours who's been looking for you and who's probably going to try to kill you. And the narrative just says that Elijah goes. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And yet he faces that unknown with courage. Now, now we're getting to what real power it looks like. Because many of us are going to face unknown things in our lives all the time. Life is uncertain. We discovered this before we moved down to Tennessee last winter. Uh, the moving trucks were coming to, to load up all of our stuff. They arrived on a Friday morning about 7 o'clock or so, in, um, 7.30. And about 11.30 in the morning, as they're loading up all of our stuff from our house here in Cincinnati putting it in this big truck to drive to Tennessee, I get a call from our realtor. And I think, oh, you know, they're probably just working on the punch list. We um, had given, there were some things that needed to be done on the house that we purchased. And it was a new construction. And so I thought she was just giving me an update. And so I answer the phone. I say, hey, Kathy, uh, what's up? And she's like, well, hey, um, when are you planning on coming to Tennessee again? I was like, well, the moving truck, you know, is going to be there tomorrow morning. So I'm going to go down there tonight and stay in the empty house and then uh, meet the moving truck tomorrow morning. And she says, okay, well, I've got some bad news. Your house was broken into last night. 
And I, and I kind of thought, oh, all right. And she's like, you know, they, they kicked in the door. They took some appliances. They scratched up the floor. But we are working to get all the appliances in today. I just wanted to know when you were coming because we want to have it as well set up as we can before you get here. So when are you going to be in town? I was like, well, you know, I'll probably be in town around 10 o'clock tonight. You know, we're going to have dinner and, and then head on down. And she's okay. And this is how I knew I was moving to the south. She says, my husband and I will meet you there just to make sure the house is okay. And do you want us to bring a gun for you to borrow? No lie. I'm thinking, what am I going to do with a gun? Like, I'm from Ohio. Like, I don't know. And I don't, I don't hunt. Like, that's going to be more dangerous probably to me. And, and she's like, well, you know, I just want you to know that we have several. And, uh, oh, of course you do. And, and so, and so it's really no problem at all. And I was like, no, hold off on the gun. I'll meet you there at 10 o'clock. And, and so uh, it ended up being later than what I thought, and so I didn't get to meet them, but I, I had the key, so I get into the house, and there's this empty house, and my mind starts racing about, like, well, okay, they, they knew that the house was empty and that we were moving in that weekend. They probably knew that insurance would pay for new appliances, and maybe they think that they're going to give new appliances, and maybe they'll hit it again, right? So, so there I am on this empty house, and it's a new construction, and the street lights weren't turned on yet on that street. So it's completely dark. It's 2 in the morning. I'm laying on the hardwood floor in the middle of this empty room on a sleeping bag. I've got a baseball bat next to me just because I think, hey, I just want to at least act tough if they come back. And my heart is just like racing, right? Because I think, what's going to happen if they come back? And this fear of the unknown was just lingering over me. And I, I really sensed that God was saying, you just need to read my word. And so I started reading the Psalms because it's really all I knew to do. And, and I started reading Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, Psalm 4. And I get to Psalm 4 and there's a verse in Psalm 4 where it says that God, he makes me lie down in safety. And I said, God, I need this to be true right now. Right? I need you to keep me safe. I need you to give me some rest and trust you in the midst of this. And I slept horribly, woke up the next morning grateful. Right? And I was just reminded of that story, you know, that, that, and when I think about that part of my life, like how scary the unknown can be. And I started to think about it other times, like when you go and you get the MRI and the doctors say, we don't know, we need more time. Right? When you seem that you're distant in relationships and you're just apart and you, you really can't seem to connect and you don't know what the future holds for you. When your kid's in an emergency room and they say more tests. Right? When your future looks maybe not that bright and you don't know what's going to happen and you thought you were going to have a future that's different than what you have now. When you're alone. You know, we all face the unknown. That's a guarantee of life. We don't know what's going to happen. And what God is showing us through Elijah is that in the midst of this unknown and this uncertain future, especially when there, he's worried and he has potential to be worried, there is a way to move forward and face that unknown with real courage and confidence and even grace. 
One of the things that is happening in this narrative as well, which you might not understand when you kind of first read it, is that I, I do believe that the author is contrasting not only Elijah with Ahab, but also with Obadiah. Because in these verses, the majority of the time is given to Obadiah. And here's Obadiah who is following the Lord. He's obeying him. He's, he's put at even risk to his own safety. He saved the Lord's prophets. And yet here he meets Elijah, and Elijah is firm and resolute and confident in the face of the unknown. And here we have Obadiah, who is completely scared. Wait a minute, I can't go back and tell my master that you're here. Because if I do, you're going to go away, and then he's going to kill me. He is trying to be obedient, and yet in the midst of his obedience, he still is very fearful. Now, what is different between Elijah, who can face the unknown and obey with certainty and grace, and Obadiah, who faces the unknown and he's still obeying, but he doesn't have that same courage and confidence and grace? See, something had happened to Elijah where the assurance of God had made its way all the way down into the core of who he is. That had not happened to Obadiah yet. Now, that doesn't mean that Obadiah wasn't a follower of God. It doesn't mean he wasn't being obedient. It doesn't mean that he wasn't even experiencing God's care and blessing. And yet, that assurance, and the test was when he was facing the unknown, that assurance of who God is had not made its way all the way down into Obadiah's core being. And so when he faces the unknown, he's incredibly fearful and worrisome. Maybe that's you. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus. Maybe you have surrendered your life to him and you are trusting in him for his salvation. And yet, if you're honest, your life is marked by worry. And you're anxious about the future. And when you think about the things that are unknown, what's going to happen to my kids? What's going to happen to my money? What's going to happen to my job? What's going to happen to my health? What's going to happen to my marriage? What's going to happen? And you are marked by a sense of worry and anxiety. And even though you're being obedient, even though you're doing the right things, you're not facing the unknown with confidence and courage and grace. I believe that the word of God would say to us this morning that there is an assurance that leaks down into the very bottom of your soul. And that's real power. This is the real power that God wants us to see, to face the unknown with courage. Now, what kind of assurance do we have? Where does Elijah get this kind of assurance? Well, I I think it's tied to this, that Elijah knew who was calling him. He knew that God had chosen him and that God had promised to be with him. And that God had said that I am making you righteous. Righteous is a really interesting word that's used in a lot of different ways in the Bible. And sometimes we can get kind of tripped up on what that really means. And yet, here's what I want to tell you this morning. That righteousness simply means this. That God loves you so much that he sings over you. You know the Bible says that. That if you're a follower of Jesus, that God just doesn't tolerate you. That God doesn't just kind of deal with your sin and he doesn't just think, okay, well, if you just would clean yourself up and start working through your addictions and just fix yourself, then maybe I can have a relationship with you. But until now, uh, until you do that, for right now, I'm just going to just tolerate you. Now, the Bible says that as we surrender to him, that something about that actually makes God really happy about us and he enjoys us and he sings over us. And we know when we look at the New Testament that that is even greater realized through Jesus. That Jesus is God's greatest gift to us and he gives us him as a sacrifice. And he says, through what I'm doing with Jesus, that he's going to die, he's going to rise again, he's going to give you the permission to be in a right relationship with me. 
And I'm going to see you as someone that I love so deeply, not someone that I'm just tolerating, not someone that I'm just kind of enduring, not someone that I'm just waiting to do really good things. I'm going to see you as someone that I sing over, that I rejoice over, that actually gives me pleasure. Think about that. Elijah knew the God who had called him. That God was assuring him that he was with him. And him and God being with Elijah was not based on anything that Elijah could do. Now, do we know that? Do we know that through Jesus we have access to that same power, that assurance that can make its way all the way down? Well, if we do, then we can face the unknown because God of the universe loves us and sings over us and promises to be with us. And this same God has said, I'm with you now and I will be with you in the future because you don't have to worry about losing this relationship with me because my relationship with you is based on my ability to stay faithful, not your ability to stay faithful. And God never fails, which means that even when we mess up, even when we're insecure in our own efforts, even when we think that we're failing God, that God still looks at us and says, I am not leaving you. I am staying with you, that assurance breeds in us a confidence about the future. Uh, in college, I had an academic advisor slash mentor slash Miyagi in my life. And one of the things he told me, because I was prone to worry about my future and what was going to happen. You know, I, I've just been reflecting on this now. I'm 34. You know, your 20s are really so much about just forming all of your ideals. You know, and then your 30s are about seeing all those crash to the ground. But your 20s... I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, that's actually really healthy in a lot of ways. But your 20s are about just forming your ideals. And so I was just having these ideas of how life would turn out, but I wasn't sure if it was going to go that way. And so I would go sit in his office and Dr. Thorpe would say, okay, what's the worst that could happen? So I take for the example of grad school. I wanted to do grad school at the time. He says, what's the worst that could happen? Well, I don't get accepted. He says, okay, and then what? Well, then I go back and live in Cincinnati. Okay, and I, and I live with my mom or my dad. Okay, great. And then what? Well, I, I really can't find a job because I majored in philosophy. And let's be honest, that's worthless. So then what? He says, okay, so, so then you, you go work and, and you end up doing something like manual labor or something like that. Yeah. And, and he says, well, then what? Well, then I guess I maybe save up enough money to buy a house and I go fishing on the weekends. He says, okay, great. And then what? And I said, well, I guess life goes on. He said, yeah. And God will still be with you. When you can reduce life to those kinds of terms, that assurance works its way in and then you have the courage to face the unknown. What are you facing right now that's unknown? It can't be worse than Elijah. Going to face this wicked king who is probably going to kill him. I mean, death is kind of the ultimate equalizer for us all, right? And yet he was able to walk in the face of death and say, God, I trust you because I know that you will be with me. Here's what I want to leave with you this morning. Where are you facing an unknown in your life? And do you have this assurance, this power that we see in our passage today? Maybe even now you're, you're starting to think about some of those things. Man, I'm worried about this. God, I don't know what I'm going to do. Or if I, I'm honest, I kind of look like Obadiah where I'm obeying, but my life is marked by anxiety. Or maybe it's Ahab where you thought you had positional power and yet you're realizing, man, I just don't. And, and you're reacting in fear and insecurity and defensiveness. 
I think God would want to speak to you this morning about that. And I think God would want to help use this sermon and whatever efforts I had to help push his great singing love for you down into your core being so that whenever you face the unknown, you will be able to face it with confidence and grace because you are assured of his great love for you through Jesus Christ. And then what's the worst that can happen? Let's pray and ask him to help us. Father, uh, thanks for your goodness. And God, we um, face unknown things and uncertainties all the time. And the tendency, God, as we face these unknowns and uncertainties is to run to a place of fear and insecurity. God, even maybe to obey, but yet to do it with a worried heart. And God, real power is not found in strength or might. Real power is found in the assurance that you give us that we can face the unknown with courage and confidence and grace. God, we need that. And we need your son Jesus who makes that real for us. And we need your Holy Spirit to quicken our hearts to this, God. So I pray for those things as we move about our day and our week, God. As we face unknowns and and we try to figure that out, Lord, I pray that you would give us supernatural confidence and courage. And that assurance of what you've done for us to Jesus would pastor us and lead us to live differently. God, give us that power. And we pray this in your great name. Amen. Thank you, Adam. It's great to have you back as a guest. I always enjoy your teaching. And thank you for reminding us that no matter what we do face, God is there. He wants to connect with you. In fact, we would love to connect with you if you have any questions about Horizon. I want to encourage you to drop by the hearth room, third door on the left as you leave. Uh, We have some people down there that are called Horizon Home, and they would love to put a name with a face. So drop by the hearth room, and we would love to connect. If you came uh, wanting to give, offering boxes are outside the door just to the left. Just drop it off on your way out. And I want to thank you for coming, and we'll see you back next week.